the uh, 13th century Jewish philosopher Maimonides. If he were alive today, Maimonides would agree with the statement I am about to say. You will know more about God by understanding E equals MC squared than you will by reading the Bible. I would agree with him. I would agree with him. Now, let me... I would disagree. (laughs) Good. The Village Square, a nervy bunch of liberals and conservatives who believe that disagreement and dialogue make for a good conversation, a good country, and a good time. At the Village Square, we talk about politics, religion, and race. You know, the topics your mom taught you never to discuss in polite company. Listen, at the Village Square, we make pigs fly. Welcome to Village Squarecast. This is Vanessa Rouse. Thanks for joining us for Faith versus Science, Mythos and Logos Amid the Raging Pathos. Was anybody else a little puzzled by that title? Mythos, Logos, what? I was feeling a little silly for not knowing what that meant in this context, but then I saw a description on our event page and realized I might not be alone. So for all my people out there, mythos refers to intuition, wisdom, and meaning, while logos is about rational, pragmatic, and scientific thought. So now that we're all on the same page, the name for this program comes from the insights of a former Catholic nun, author Karen Armstrong, who says that mythos and logos are simply different ways of knowing. I personally think this program addresses a huge elephant in the room, the one that comes around when we're with people on the opposite team, when we make assumptions instead of asking questions. I'm guilty of that for sure, and this program really helped shift my perspective on some things. I can't wait to share more about that at the end. As you might have guessed, our panel includes experts from both the faith camp and the science camp. First, you'll be introduced to physicist Dr. Harrison Prosper, who is a professor of physics at Florida State University, and he was also on the team at CERN in Switzerland that discovered the Higgs boson, referred to by some as the God particle. More on that directly from Dr. Prosper in a minute. Representing faith, we have Father Matthew Bush, who was at Blessed Sacrament Catholic Church at the time this program took place. And he's since moved on to Immaculate Conception Catholic Church in Perry, Florida. And third, we have Mike McCarg, or Science Mike, who is a Christian turned atheist turned follower of Jesus. He talks faith in an age where science explains our world so well. So he sort of represents both a faith and science perspective. Finally, back to facilitate is Rabbi Jack Romberg, who has a long history with the Village Square as a board member and founding member of the God Squad and a regular facilitator. Before we get started, we'd like to give a quick but very important shout out to Florida Humanities for partnering with us to present this podcast series, Created Equal and Breathing Free, where we're airing our new fall programs, plus some favorite throwbacks like this one. So thanks for joining us on this journey, and thanks to Florida Humanities for making it possible. All right, let's get on with Faith versus Science. Here's Rabbi Jack Romberg. 
Okay, so I'm sitting on your extreme right because Hebrew reads from right to left. <laughs> Let me ask you a question. What side, what tribe am I part of? Rabbi Jack Romberg, am I part of the faith tribe or the science tribe? Don't answer now. Just kind of hold on to that for a while. I don't know if you saw this, but a group of scientists got together and decided that with all of the great advances in science, the ability to clone and closing in on the possibility of even cloning a human being, that we didn't need God anymore. And they decided to send a delegate to God and to uh, tell God, you know what, just get out of town, we don't need you anymore. So the chosen scientist went over and talked to God and said, God, you know, we've got this thing handled. We can create anything now. We, we have so many advances, we really don't need you anymore. So God listened carefully and nodded and said, you know what, I'll tell you what, let's have a little contest. Let's have a human-making contest. Let's do it in the same way I did it years, eons ago, back in the days of Adam. Let's have a human-making contest. The scientist nodded said, okay, I'm good with that. And he reached down to grab a handful of dirt. And God said, wait a minute, get your own dirt. Think about why that might have been funny to you. I bet if I asked different people in this room, it was funny for different reasons. And the different reasons and different perspectives of why you laughed probably tell us a lot about the issues and people's approach to the issues that we're going to go through tonight. We are so privileged in this community to have a great university like Florida State University. And because we have a great university like Florida State, we have the ability to call on really top-notch people in their field. And so the first guest I'm going to call up is really, uh, we are so unbelievably fortunate to have him with us. Dr. Harrison Prosper is a member of the collaboration at CERN in Switzerland, where he played an active role in the discovering, breaking discovering of the Higgs boson. Dr. Prosper is the Kirby W. Kemper Professor of Physics and Distinguished Research at FSU. It is my pleasure to introduce Dr. Harrison Prosper. So is it okay to call you Harrison or must it be Dr. Prosper? Harrison, Harry, Hal, whatever you want. Okay. All right. Harrison, so my first question to you is probably the one that everybody in this room, other than you and Science Mike, are yearning to know which is, what exactly is a Higgs boson? Wow. Well, first of all, let me say I'm really delighted to be here. This is really going to be, I think, I hope, interesting, necessarily for me. So let me just tell you a little bit about that. Well, when I'm not teaching students, I spend my time torturing protons. And the reason I do that is because I want to actually learn something about how protons behave. And why do I do that? Because I want to know something about well, the Higgs boson. So you may have heard in 2012, my colleagues and I at CERN actually announced something on July the 4th, 2012. We found enough evidence to make the claim that there's this particle in nature that is ultimately, we think, the reason why we're able to sit on our seats today and is also the reason why we are actually here today. And we think that without the Higgs boson, mass, as we understand it, wouldn't exist. And without mass, 
at least without the mass of particles like electrons, we wouldn't be here. So this is really a big deal, and I'm happy to talk more about that at some point. Well, I, I'm going to ask you to elaborate what, what exactly is the particle and how, how, when you say we wouldn't be here, what do you mean? And, and does this relate in any way to the Higgs field? Yes, indeed. So, for example, why are you able to sit on your seat? It's because you have mass. What is mass? Mass is something that slows you down, inertia. And for a long, long time, we wanted to understand, you know, where does that come from? What is the origin? Now, it turns out that mass is something that you can easily derive from Einstein's ideas. For example, let's say you go to Publix and you buy, say, uh, three apples, each weighing about 0.5 pounds. What's the total weight of these apples? Uh, 1.5 pounds, right? Now, imagine that you now buy a few of these particles that make up a proton. They weigh essentially nothing, almost, almost, almost nothing at all. If you put them inside a bag, suddenly they weigh about 100 to 200 times more than the individual particles inside that, uh, form, that form the proton. So why is the Higgs boson important? It's important because it tells us, we think, that there's something in space and time called the Higgs field that goes through our bodies everywhere around us, and it is that field that interacts with the other particles and gives them mass. The one particle without which we would not exist is the electron. The electron has a very, very small mass, incredibly small. But that small mass is absolutely critical to our existence. Imagine, for example, this is the year 3000, and we've figured out how to manipulate the Higgs field, and we are able to make it disappear. What would happen to, say, this chair? The electrons in that chair would basically become massless, and therefore, as it the mass disappeared, they would travel faster and faster and faster until they would travel at the speed of light. Then they would simply whiz away to space and the chair would be no more. There would be no more any atoms and that would be the end of it. So we are here because the electrons in our bodies are mass massive. They have small amounts of mass, a small amount of mass, and that mass, we believe, is the result of the interaction between the electron field and the Higgs field. And this is why... This is such a big deal. If that were not present, we would all just disappear. So I think that most of us in the room understand that the Big Bang Theory is not just a television show. <laughs> that it actually is a, a way of constructing the, the actual origins of the, of the universe. That so do the, your discoveries uh, regarding the uh, Higgs boson and the Higgs field, do they confirm, do they fit in with what we know as the Big Bang Theory, and if so, how? Yes, that's, that's really the case. In fact, one of the motivations, one of the most exciting things that's happened over the past 20 years is the realization that the very, very small ties in with the very, very large. So let's actually wind back the clock about 14 billion years to the, the, the time of the Big Bang. We think that around three minutes after the Big Bang, there was this furious reactions going on. All kinds of things were happening. But eventually what happened is that the universe expanded further. It cooled down. And we had protons, neutrons, and they formed, you know, they formed the nuclei of, of, uh, of helium, for example. 
But for a long, long time, for about 300,000 years, the universe was opaque to light, which actually is ironic because the universe was actually very, very bright. So indeed, you know, in the beginning, there was a lot of light, and the universe was opaque. The poor little photons trying to go through the, uh, this plasma would constantly be bouncing around all over the place and wouldn't be able to travel freely. But then something remarkable happened. The universe became colder, and eventually these photons streamed freely. And the point is, is that you need things to be cold enough for atoms to form. But they wouldn't have formed if the Higgs field did not exist. Why? Because the electrons would be traveling at the speed of light. And it would have been impossible for the nuclei to capture the electrons and make atoms. And we think, there's one thing we're pretty sure about, that without atoms, there can be no stars, planets, people, iPhones, hamburgers, etc. And so, the fact that this tiny particle, the electron, had this incredibly small mass formed by its interaction with the Higgs field is why atoms form and why we think ultimately we are here. So absolutely, it fits in beautifully. In fact, it fits in too well, because one of the things that we would love to do at CERN over the next five, ten years is to show that we're wrong. Why? Because that's the only way we make progress. Well, we're going to talk about that a little bit later, actually. So I know I could uh, do fine without hamburgers, but I don't know if I could do without my iPhone. According to, uh, again, you can correct me, I'm a, a lay person when it comes to any of this, but I read that Dr. Stephen Hawking has said something about the whole universe is going to be destroyed because of an imbalance in the Higgs field. Is, is this something we should be worried about? In principle, if our species were to last several billion times the age of the universe, absolutely we should be worried about it. This is actually very interesting because the fact that the Higgs boson exists and now we know the mass very precisely, it's 125 billion electron volts, tells us that if our current understanding is correct, that we live in a universe where the, the vacuum, the empty space, is metastable. What does that mean? What it means really is that it could, at some point, decay into the stable vacuum, the, the, the lowest possible state. And if that were to happen, it would be bad news because perhaps even the laws as we understand them would change. And who knows? We, the good news is that you would not know it was happening to you, right? It could well be that as we speak, there's a bubble of this true vacuum that's racing across space towards us. And one day in the distant future, it will come sweeping past our world and the world will be no more. But then we would know about it, so don't worry. But if you know about it, you're going to worry. Actually, I must, I must say, I personally, you know, one of my regrets is that I can't come back in the year, you know, 4 billion AD. Because I would love to see the destruction of the Earth. Wouldn't that be exciting to see it actually happen and say, yes, we're right. Uh -huh. We got it right. <laughs> I want to ask everybody, how many of you in the first few minutes of this program have learned something you didn't know before? So... I think what comes next is going to be really fun. So even if it doesn't end up being fun, you've already gotten your money's worth of the evening. <laughs> you have gotten a physics lecture from one of the top people in the world. I'd like to bring up a couple of other guests now.
and, uh, and expand this conversation. Mike McCarg is a Christian turned atheist turned follower of Jesus. Mike uses his story to help people know God in an age of incredible scientific insight, teaching about science, faith, atheism, and doubt. He's written for Relevant and Soho.net. In addition to his blog, Mike is part of the project The Liturgists, exploring new ways to create sacred art and rituals. Please welcome Mike McCarg. And I'm going to bring up our final guest as well and then direct a couple of questions specifically each to Mike and to uh, Father Matthew. Father Matthew Bush is a native of Tallahassee, serving as a Catholic priest at Blessed Sacrament Church. He holds a bachelor's in liberal arts from Thomas Aquinas College in California and a master's of divinity from St. Vincent de Paul Regional Seminary in Boynton Beach. Father Matthew has a keen interest in theoretical physics and has delivered annual modern science and Catholicism presentations at various parishes in Florida since 2012. Please welcome Father Matthew Bush. So I want to start by asking uh, you, Mike, and uh, you, Father Matthew, the same question, and I'm going to turn it over to you guys and let you uh, talk for a few minutes. Given what uh, Harrison has described and his, you know, the insights that have been discovered about the origins of the universe... Is there a place for God in any of this? Is there a place for God in the scientific discoveries of how the universe comes into being and came into being and how it's held together? And if you believe so, please explain why and how. So, Mike? So it's really phenomenal if you look at our world through science. It's actually quite exciting. Uh, it's a little intimidating to talk about being the only college dropout on the platform. Uh, but it, it's still fascinating nonetheless, as, as we've sort of discussed, if you begin to roll the clock backwards on the universe, everything starts to get closer and closer and closer together, and if you get 13.77 or so billion years into the past, you arrive at something that science calls a singularity. Singularity is basically a scientific word for, eh, we're not quite sure what it is, and that there's singularities today, we believe, in the middle of black holes, but this singularity is special. We call it the initial singularity. It's where everything came from. Now, you can imagine the room we're in now, the planet we're on, and yes, we are on a planet right now. Think about that. You're on a planet right now. A lot of people forget. I don't know. It's cool to remember. So if you look backwards into this singularity, you can imagine that the life we live is played out on a board game, like a Monopoly board. Only this board is called space-time. And just like Monopoly, the game of reality has rules. We call these rules the laws of physics. There's four really important ones. Uh, there's a law of gravity, the law of electromagnetism, the strong nuclear force, and the weak nuclear force. I won't even bother going into them on the platform with a physics professor. But basically, well. in Monopoly, whenever your piece passes go, you collect $200. And in the rule of gravity, every particle is attracted to every other particle in the universe that has mass, but that attraction weakens with distance. It's all just rules. Now, what's amazing about the singularity is our math tells us that these rules start to break down in some way. They change from what we understand because the values in the equations that describe these rules start to approach infinity. 
And so people way smarter than me have told me that we surmise it's possible that, for example, the four fundamental forces of physics were one, and that space and time were one. If you could even deduce that time and causality exist in a singularity, you can imagine that it's even timeless. So what we're understanding is what we came from is not only beyond our ability to describe with language or to imagine with our intuition, but even today beyond our ability to plot out mathematically. Essentially, we came from a mysterious oneness in physics. We didn't create it, but we get to enjoy the gift of existence. And if that's not God, I don't know what is. So, so let me push you a little bit before I go on to uh, Matthew. I really felt like it was a good argument, though. <laughs> Your bio says you're a follower of Jesus, and I know that you go to a friend of mine's church who's yes. pastor there. Okay? So uh, please explain to me how Jesus is a singularity point at the origin of the universe. So that would be uh, half my definition. Half the way I understand God is that God is a set of uh, forces that created and sustained the universe. That's half of how I understand God. The other way I understand God is that God is something that human beings experience. And so for some reason, uh, through curious self-organizing principles in our universe, uh, matter, despite entropy, tends to get more intricate. We get planets, we get galaxies, we get stars, we get nebula. Eventually we get abiogenesis, we get evolution, we get people. And from people, we get something very fascinating called consciousness. And once you have consciousness, you have these little fragments of the universe that can contemplate the fact that they exist. As Carl Sagan said, the universe begins to know itself. And so I believe, for thoroughly mystical and non-scientific reasons, that one particular human being especially embodied an incarnation of this original energy and in doing so, showed us better ways to live now and showed us how to be closer to that God. I don't make exclusive fact claims with faith, but I do claim that the particular model of Jesus helps me to know that God better. Father Matthew, I throw this to you. You are in the God business, like me. How do you reconcile the origin of the universe as science explains it with your religious beliefs? Do you reconcile it, and if so, how? Thank you, Jack, for having us here and for moderating. Uh, Liz, wherever you are, thank you for uh, for hosting us. Thank you, everybody, for being here. I'm kind of a noob newbie when it comes to this, and so I'm a little nervous right now. I don't know if the debate allows for this, but can I have a fan blowing in my face, maybe constantly? <laughs> Your first question was, is there room for God in this? Yes. This explanation, this structure right. of the universe that we've built through scientific inquiry. And um, it reminds me of a story. There's a, uh, there's a husband and a wife uh, who lived at a house with an attic. The husband said, you know, I've heard things bumping during the night. Pretty sure we've got a ghost living in our attic. And the wife says, well, that's impossible. With all the crap you've got crammed in there, there wouldn't be any room. In other words, <laughs> as a joke grenade. So tell me how this relates to God and science. <laughs> the, the advancement, you know, adding more things 
discovering more knowledge doesn't take away from God's space. The, the idea, I think, which, which sometimes fundamentalists can share with, with atheists, a concept of God that says God, God is only there to explain what we don't know. Um, and in that sense, if that's our, our concept of God, the more we know, the more God will shrink and the less space he has uh, to take up. But in, in my view, the more we know about what I call creation, the more we know about the creator. And so our, our sense of God, our, our understanding of God doesn't shrink as we know more, but expands. I guess that's my initial answer to the question. Well, then let me throw a question to each of you, and you can each take a turn answering this. And this really gets to the nub of it. Is the universe random, or is there some kind of intelligence behind its origin? You're up here to answer these questions, guys. (laughs) Okay. Um, I didn't argue that hard. Actually, in, in a way, the answer is very easy. I don't know. And, and that's really the, that's really the honest answer. I don't know. And, and the, the thing about science and scientists and, and, and myself in particular is that I'm happy to go for life not knowing, not understanding. But it is an interesting question. You know, is it random? Is it not random? I'll give you a, a little bit of history here. In the 1600s, there was this uh, young man by the name of uh, Johann Kepler who went to work for one Tycho Brahe. And, you know, as is want of young men, he told his uh, boss, who asked him to figure out the orbit of Mars, um, you know, how long is it going to take you to do this? Uh, you know, six months, tops, we'll be done. It took him 18 years. <laughs> and, and one of the reasons it took a long time is because he had these preconceived ideas about how things should be. So, for example, he thought that there was some relationship between the positions of the planets and the platonic solids. And so for a long, long, long time, he tried to fit what he saw in the data that he eventually stole, by the way, from his boss. When the boss, his boss died, he thought that there was some connection. Eventually, however, he, he, he was able to get rid of his uh, mysticism in this particular regard, and he just allowed the data to tell him which direction to go in. And so th- there are things sometimes one, that one wonders, are they random or are they not random? Um, and another example of this, if you, today we, we are, I mean, we are an amazing species in many respects. We, we are in 2015 and we have an understanding of the world around us, which is, which is phenomenal. If we were to go back a mere 100 years, the, the advancement in that time has been astonishing. However, there are things in our, our understanding that we do not even know whether they are random or not random. For example, if I simply enumerate all of the numbers that one has to plug in to our theories to describe the Higgs boson, protons, what have you, there are about 19 numbers. I don't know whether those 19 numbers are random numbers or whether there's a deep understanding behind them that we have yet to uncover. We don't even know if the question makes sense to even be looking for an explanation for these numbers. It could well be that these 19 numbers are random, or could it be, for example, that actually the world in which we live, as some of my colleagues theorize, is on one of many? For example, let's suppose the universe were infinitely large. We live in a little bubble. Well, little. By the way, when a, when a scientist says little, you have to calibrate. Right. Okay? 
So we live in this bubble that's about 30 billion light years across, and that's growing at the speed of light. And in this little bubble, there are 10 to the 80 particles. Okay? Now, you can actually work out all the number of arrangements of these particles. And if the universe is infinite, there's this very strange possibility that there's another bubble with 10 to the 80 particles arranged differently. And so every possible arrangement of these particles exists. And you, for example, exist infinitely many times. And by the way, in one of those, you have green hair, which is actually pretty cool. We, we, we just don't know. We, you know, for example, as far as we're concerned, around this bubble, there could lie, there may be dragons, as far as we know. And so I think I am happy to go through life not knowing whether this is random or not. Matthew, Father Matthew, is it random? Is it with purpose? Uh, well, okay. I guess to the extent that those are exclusive, randomness being uncaused, without a cause, I honestly don't know what the best definition of randomness is, but uh, but I do think there's a purpose uh, to things. Is, is there some kind of, I hate to use the word intelligent design because it's such a loaded Mm-hmm. You know, term, but is there intelligence behind the, the creation of the universe? I, I, I don't know how to so. put it any differently. Yeah, I, I, I believe there is. And you could also get into what the definition of intelligence is uh, in, in, that, in that question. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not trying to get too semantic here, but, uh, yeah, but yes, anti semantic. <laughs> it is really hard not to team clap up here, I'm just saying. <laughs> I, I do believe that uh, that things have a purpose. Yes, I do believe that there's a uh, a cause and an intelligence uh, and a, a, an end towards which things are moving. Yes. How how the, the church has? I'm I'm going to push you a little bit now. Sure. Uh, the the church has a long history itself as an institution of gra- of grappling with science. I mean. Back in his day, Galileo was considered a, a heretic by the church. Okay. So how, how does the church, what, what does church doctrine do to reconcile scientific findings and scientific advancement with the religious doctrine of the church? How, how, how does the church handle this? Well, I think that we try to proceed as anyone would, would who's trying to reconcile two different things. Hopefully with caution. Maybe that's not always been the case. But also, um, with, with love. Hopefully. And, uh, you know, I know John Paul II apologized for things such as the Galileo affair, uh, within the last 20 years. And the other point I'd try to make is that, you know, humility is so, is so important. Uh, if we're going to know anything, coming, coming from a position of pride, I think, is the most detrimental thing to learning new knowledge. And even Galileo himself remained Catholic his whole life. You can read his book. Uh, his his daughter was a nun, and they corresponded in letters uh, back and forth. And to the day to the day he died, as far as I can tell, certainly in his old age, uh, he remained a committed Catholic. And so he didn't give up on the church. In a way, he helped the church mature. I think through through a very difficult time scientifically, where uh, the church was. Allies with their Aristotelian philosophy, and that got involved with its understanding of physics and whatnot. Galileo really helped uh, spring things forward there. But but I think the way that you do it is um, let me move if I, if I have a moment just to a different but related topic. The person who's had an, a religious encounter, 
right now Google is sending out uh, divers and, and boats, I think, in, in the Loch Ness, searching for the Loch Ness monster. I just read this today. And let's say one of those divers swimming around and he sees Nessie, swims right up, reaches out, touches Nessie, and then the creature is gone again. Well, he's going to come out of the lake, as usual he doesn't have his camera on him. <laughs> he's going to come out of the lake and he's going to say, you know what, I've had an experience here. I've had an encounter with Nessie. I, I saw this creature with my own eyes. And neither you nor me or Dr. Harrison or Science Mike, anybody, we can all say, you know what, the pH balance in the water couldn't sustain this creature. There's no way a dinosaur could still be around, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, no amount of reasoning that we give that man or woman is going to convince them that they have not had this experience. And so these are the two, I guess, sides that we're trying to reconcile. The one of people who've had this experience of God, this encounter, and then they've got the scientific community also telling them, in some cases, no, you haven't had this experience. Uh, and, and both of them have areas where they're very strong, but trying to reconcile those two areas is, is a... I guess that's part of the work that we're here for. Before today. I follow up, and I don't want to push you too hard too fast, I want Mike to weigh in on this. Well, I mean, it's word pudding, right? When we're talking about the biggest questions of reality, it's so difficult to use human language to describe these things because we developed under a set of circumstances to deal with things a bit bigger than a grain of sand and a bit smaller than the mountain in the distance. That's where our brains really excel. And so when you get to quantum phenomenon or you get to cosmology, the way we imagine the world, it kind of, it kind of breaks down. So even let's talk about randomness. Randomness is simply means mathematically nobody has an edge. When I flip this coin over and over, heads and tails are going to balance out over time. So is the universe random by that definition? Well, certainly not. Because we know the laws of physics tend to have these curious, self-organizing principles as long as energy is available. But in the absence of an energy influx, our universe tends toward entropy. If entropy sounds confusing, let's think about that iPad. If you drop it, it's a lot easier to break an iPad than build a new one, right? That's physics. It's real easy to drop it and shatter the screen. It's very, very hard to put that screen back together. It's Humpty Dumpty, okay? So the universe is not random, but then... If we look at the other alternative, is it guided by intelligence? Well, what compels me most in both science and in faith is an embrace of mystery, right? So what I love about science is the humility to say, on this issue, we do not know. And it's also what I find most compelling in theology is the mystics, the people who say we've experienced God, but every time we try to put this experience into language in some way, it fails. Which, by the way, neuroscientists who have studied people who have had experiences with God have validated that. You can brain scan what God looks like or someone's understanding of God is like in their brains, and if they try to explain it, they activate their left temporal lobe and in doing so, they modify that original brain structure. To put God into language in a very well way limits the divine. And so when I look at is the universe caused by an intelligence, I am incredibly hesitant to use anthropomorphic terms like intelligence or being or even temporal terms to something that has any relation to singularity. So, so all right, I, I'm going to, sorry, Harrison, I'm going to push him a little bit. Go for it. I love uh, it. So you are taking a very rational approach 
But religion and belief in God is non-rational because it's unprovable. It's unprovable in a quantifiable way. And it's amazing I'm sitting here as a rabbi saying this. <laughs> Best panel uh, ever. So, so you, you, you are taking this extremely rational approach. Please tell me how you reconcile that with your earlier statement of that Jesus was the one person who most personifies the whatever, whatever. Well, I, I think I said Jesus compels me particularly. I actually don't make exclusive claims about Jesus religiously because I can't do that on a basis of rational thought, right? I know Jesus is important to me. I don't know that he's important to somebody in the Middle East today. I just I can't make that fact claim. But when I look at faith and science, I view them as holding fundamentally different roles in our lives. Science is the best means human beings have to uncover facts about reality in the world. It's great at it. If you'd like to demonstrate this, take two teams, give one team engineers who know rocket equations, and the other team prayer warriors, and try to put a nuclear-powered robot on Mars. <laughs> so, team science is going to do quite well. Team prayer could have difficulty landing that robot. But, but, science doesn't do some things at all. One, science does not speak to moral quality of issues. Two, science doesn't weigh in on things aesthetic. It cannot tell us if something is beautiful or not. Three, science cannot tell us what to do with what we learn from science. And four, science doesn't weigh in on the supernatural because by definition, it is not measurable within the reference frame of naturalism. Okay? So, on the other hand, is faith. And when I talk about faith, the best way I understand things is to think about me as a father who understands science. And if you would imagine to me on a Saturday afternoon getting out of my car and my seven-year-old daughter taking my hand to cross the parking lot at Publix, I could tell you about electron boundaries repelling each other. I could tell you about biochemistry creating nerve action and allowing that sensation of child in my brain. I could tell you all about the neurotransmitters and synaptic responses that create feelings of trust and empathy. But that would tell you absolutely nothing about the actual experience of being a father who's in love with his daughter. For that, you need the poet or the songwriter or even the sacred scripture. Harrison has been wanting to weigh in on this. So, <laughs> And then by, as soon as uh, you do, we're going to break up the audience participation into segments. I'm going to open up for a few questions now, then we'll move on to a little different topic, and then open it up again. So, Harrison. I have absolutely no doubt, no doubt whatsoever, that people do have these intense experiences. I mean, that's, that's as you say, it's documented, and, and, and it's an objective fact. People have these intense experiences. What I'm less inclined to conclude is that those experiences indicate the existence of, of something, you know, beyond, beyond us. Let's call that thing God. And, and the reason I say that is because we have, let me, a very personal story. I have to tell you this because it's, it's, it really gets to the heart of the matter. So my, my late little brother was a, a bio, you know, biologist and he, he used to, he worked for some big company in England doing trials and what have you. Now, he was, he was full of joy. You know, he, he laughed, he had a kid, he played the guitar. I mean, he was the embodiment of what you've been saying you know, about life. But he also had a severe mental illness. And 
when he took his medication, he was my beautiful, wonderful Alexander. But one day, he came to visit us in Tallahassee, and I saw that over the course of a few days, he was beginning to discombobulate. And we went to St. George Island, and we had lots of fun there, and on our way back, he completely broke down. And what I saw was a different being, an entirely different being. My poor brother was utterly frightened about what he was seeing. So for him, what he saw that was terrifying was absolutely real. Even though I, sitting next to him, didn't see the same thing. And there's no way I could have convinced him that what he was experiencing then and there was not real. But is that experience of God or the devil? I can't make that leap. All I can say is that people have experiences like this, and it's another step to conclude that this is an experience of God or the devil or whatever. The other thing, going back to the conversation about the, the beginning of the universe, it is true that our current theories, for example, the general theory of relativity, as written, by the way, this year is the 100th anniversary of this fantastic paper by Albert Einstein that was published in December 1915, which described time and space as a continuum, as something that could be warped, distorted, bent. And in many ways, it's a very strange theory because it, the, the best way to understand it is to suppose that everything that is, is. It's just there, out, in, out there in space-time. So tomorrow already exists. Yesterday is still there. And, and we just happen to be creatures who can only remember one direction, not the other direction. So it's a very strange idea, very strange theory, but it works. It explains things that we see around us. But it has a flaw which is as you wind back those equations to t equals zero, they break down. They break down, crash and burn in a singularity as was, as was explained by Mike. What this tells me as a physicist is that at some point that theory is no longer a good theory and something else has to come, come to be and we know it has to be because if you wind back the clock 14 billion years, then our little bubble that is 30 billion light years across was in something the size, less than the size of, an, of, a, of a nucleus. So we just know that this theory cannot work. And we simply have no idea what happens at that point. And so, I, again, I'm, I'm, I'm reluctant to make any conclusions about whether or not one day we might understand. In fact, there are people who are very courageous or foolish, depending on your point of view, who actually are trying to understand whether you can create, for example, the universe out of a quantum fluctuation. So you imagine, you know, that there's this plenum, there's this, 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 this stuff out there, formless, with no dimensions, neither time nor space, nothing. And out of that nothing, there's a fluctuation that coalesces, crystallizes into space-time that expands. Or that people say that maybe way back when there were these high-dimensional objects. Uh, I like to, the way I like to describe it is, you know, imagine that you have these ten-dimensional kids playing, playing basketball with the ten-dimensional balls. And occasionally these balls collide and they collapse down, you know, six dimensions collapse down, four dimensions expand out. And then, of course, 14 billion years later, these crazy creatures called Homo sapiens foolishly think that this is the Big Bang. But what they didn't know was that actually that's just two kids playing 10-dimensional football. <laughs> the, the point is, the point is, I don't know. 
But the fantastic thing about our species is that we have this ridiculously large thing in our head that allows us to ask those questions. And it may well be that a thousand years from now, they will look back and say, what was the big deal? Of course, you know, this is a ten-dimensional kid playing ten-dimensional football. So I just want, I, I think one has to be tentative. And, and I, there, we'll get to this at some point. I mean, there are things that, that I wish to be absolute about, but, but not when it comes to statements about what we can and cannot know and whether God is or is not uh, real. Since we are in an organization that recognizes tribalism, I am going to claim Albert Einstein from my tribe. <laughs> let's, let's take a couple of questions from the uh, floor, and then we'll move on to a different subject. Hi, my name is Yolanda. I just want to say this has been so stimulating. I want to read my questions so I don't get nervous. In the social construction of reality, there is patriarchy. If our idea of God expands, as many of you have already said, why is God male? If God is not male, why don't we stop saying so? Father Matthew, why is God male? I have to turn this over to the church. I mean, I'm a troublemaker at heart, you know, so. How controversial do I want to be here? Uh, Very. Actually, be as controversial as you want. Well, you're in a safe space. I would say, um, first of all, God is not male in the sense that we know male and female. In fact, if if we're talking about God of the universe, of course, I would say of course, but maybe this isn't obvious, but. I, th- I would say, of course, this God has all the good characteristics, qualities of both male and female, the masculine and feminine qualities. And so God isn't, isn't a male in that sense. Uh, he's female just as, as much as male uh, in, that, in that way. However, we don't want to call God an it because that we recognize in, in calling someone it that we're lowering their dignity to, to something less than human. That we're, we're sterilizing uh, that person by referring to them as it. And so we see he and she is a more dignified term to use. Uh, now, God would be super dignified above, above human beings. And so we could come up with a new gender that in- includes both uh, for God and refer to God with that. But we haven't done that yet and, until that point. We've traditionally, God has been called he. To me, I think we could, you could, you can refer to God as a she if you want. But in, in Catholic theology, uh, there's more at play there, uh, because the, the relationship that God has with humanity, with people in, in creation, humanity, uh, we see, we recognize the existence of male and female to be based upon something greater than us, based upon actually the, the relationship between God and his people. Um, and that has a gender. That's where the that's where gender comes from. We are signs of the relationship that God has with us, and so our masculinity and femininity uh, reflect that. Can I can I actually uh, venture another piece of an answer here? Do, do you on the panel mind if I do that? Go ahead. Okay. You're in charge. Well, but I'm, I'm supposed to. Okay. So uh, anybody in here a Greek scholar? Because I am not. I assume Greek is a gendered language. Uh, I know that Hebrew is, I happen to be a Hebrew scholar, uh, Hebrew is a gendered language, and the original biblical words are, are in Hebrew, and so the language is gendered. There's no such thing as an it. Every noun has a male or female, you know, aspect or, or assignment made to it. 
So I would simply theorize that how does God end up male? It was written that way in the original text, and we are dealing with the consequences of that ever since. Okay, another question. A couple of questions actually are sort of the similar. Um, why do some faiths manage to reconcile faith and science more readily, able to coexist in the same parallel spiritual and intellectual space with a little conflict? And another question points out that Hinduism doesn't contradict science. Okay, good. Another question, though. Let's, let's have a... You mentioned earlier that faith and science hold fundamentally different roles in our lives. So why is it versus? Why, aren't they, why can't they both coexist? Uh, you sell more tickets if you put verses on the flyer. A- absolutely. I will confirm that. Uh, I, I don't think they, they confl- I think they can conflict, as one of the questions alluded to. When people use faith to make fact claims that contradict good scientific findings, you create a contradiction. If you look at a sacred text and say, I'm convinced the way this is written, it must be logos and not mythos anyway, that... The earth was created in six literal 24-hour periods. Now you have a conflict, right? Now, if you take a better read of that text, then you realize this is a more poetic language. Now I'm really embarrassed about Genesis 1 on stage with a rabbi. But, like, they shouldn't. Done I'm well. Actually gonna, I'm actually going to teach you at the end of the program yeah. what Genesis 1 really says. For, for example, I, I if I, if I, for, for example, my mother, right, she's, she's as Catholic as they come, right? She, she really believes the things that she reads in her Bible. So, for example, she believes that a homo sapien was crucified on a cross, nailed to a tree, died, and resurrected physically. That is, the molecular structure of this homo sapien was reformed, reanimated, and that, that's, a, that's a claim, that's a factual claim. And I'm a scientist. I don't dismiss this out of hand. In fact, if it could be shown and proven to me that this happened, this would be the most extraordinary discovery of all time. I would forget about black holes and bosons. <laughs> I would try to understand, I would try to understand what, what, what is it about nature that allows such a thing to happen. So it's a factual claim. And I think the problem that I have is not with faith per se. In fact, we all have faith. Right? I mean, we all do. We all have, we all make meta assumptions about the world. For example, I, I, I assume, for example, that there are such things as absolute rights and absolute wrongs. I don't know. I, I have no justification for that. So, for example, I think it, is, it was an absolute wrong what the Nazis did to the Jews. An absolute wrong. And any civilization, I don't care how advanced they are, that doesn't agree that it is the case is simply one that should be cast aside. So I believe that there are absolutes. So we all have faiths. But when you make factual, factual claims that can be easily disproved, that is when conflicts arise. And so I'm, I'm willing to accept the factual claim that a person like Jesus Christ existed and that person made statements about how we should live that we should really try to aspire to that, that's that's a claim that's reasonable that I can understand, but when you make claims such as this critical aspect of Christianity that my mother, for example, believes in, that is when conflicts arise. Father Matthew, where's the conflict in that for you? <laughs> well, I, I think you're very accurate, Doctor, in identifying the resurrection as as the critical point where things go from 
kind of normal to abnormal. And, uh, but I would, I would point you to what is the most studied artifact on the planet, which is the Shroud of Turin over in Italy. And, and some of the newer research that's been done on that more recently, it's, it's an extremely curious uh, artifact. And if you're looking for proof specifically of the resurrection, you're not going to find it in the shroud, but I think that it will, it will go far at least in opening up the possibility something very strange happened, which is very abnormal. But in the end, in the end, you are just making a leap of faith that a, and please forgive me, I'm not sitting here meaning to be critical. I mean, I'm the last one to be critical of, of faith. Okay. But you are making a leap of faith and that is all in terms of belief in a resurrection of a person who gave himself up on behalf of everybody's sins. Can I respond to that? Yes. Yes. I want you to. Okay. <laughs> you have no choice. There's other, <laughs> There's other Christian opinions beside penal substitutionary atonement theory. First, um, Aristotle says that courage is the greatest virtue. But it's a virtue that can only exist in times of danger. And specifically, he says, in times of war. But I'll say, I'll modify that. I'll say in times of danger, when danger is around. Otherwise, you won't have courage. It just won't be around. Faith is, is very similar in the sense that uh, most people think that trust is a good thing. It's a good virtue. Uh, it's something positive, something that we want to nourish. But it can only exist in an absence of knowledge. And so if I, if I know that if my friend is walking with me to the market, I don't have to trust that they're going to meet me there. I already know because they're, they're coming with me. And so there's a, there's a point at which, yes, you have to make a leap of faith. Uh, and that we, could, we consider to be a good thing. Um, because if we had sure knowledge and certainty, the ability to, to have faith, to trust, would not exist. And we consider that faith a, a very great virtue. All right, but you, you science types, I'm talking to Harrison and, and Mike. You're, you're sort of a half and half, Mike. You science types, uh, you have faith as well. You have faith in your theories. You have faith that your theories are correct. We, we do. After all, they're just theories. We, we, they, they are just theories. So let me talk to you about a, a theory. There's a theory that was uh, written down by one Isaac Newton in the 1660s um, during the plague years. And that's the theory of gravity. And how did he arrive at that? Well, he, he looked, you know, he knew about Kepler's laws. You know, Kepler, the young man who spent 18 years figuring out these three laws. And, and he said, okay, what mathematical rule must I invent so that it leads to these rules that I know are true because, you know, that's what Kepler found by looking at Tycho's, Tycho Brahe's data. So he, he guessed this expression, this formula, that said, you know, um, if you have two objects, each of mass, you know, one mass, another mass, and there's yay so far apart, there's a particular expression that tells you how strongly they attract each other. That was his hypothesis. And he immediately used, after all, he's Newton, right? So he invents calculus. And he uses that to explain a multitude of things, including, for example, the tides. For a long, long time, people had no idea, you know, why does the water do what it does? One thing I tell my students is, you know, if you really want to see gravity in action, go to, go to the coast and st stay there for, you know, 24 hours looking out at the sea. And you'll notice something quite extraordinary. You'll notice that the water will come towards you 
and go away and come towards you and go away. And the thing that's extraordinary is, is that what's happening is that the, the moon and the sun are pulling the waters of the earth towards it. And this was described by this hypothesis, this, this, this theory of uh, Isaac Newton. So fast forward several hundred years, it, it explained everything. Many, many things were explained. For example, during the Second World War, it, it was used to calculate the projectiles of, of, of missiles. It was used to figure out the correct aspect ratio of missiles to penetrate the ground to actually explode and destroy the bunkers you know, during the Normandy invasion and so on. It was used to explain a huge number of things. But it failed to explain a small discrepancy it failed to explain the fact that the orbit of, of, uh, of Mercury was precessing. That is, the pointed ends was actually moving as, you, as centuries went by. And then came along Einstein and hundreds ago, and he said, look, um, actually, the whole way in which Newton thought about gravity is is, is misguided, it's wrong. It's not a force. It's really something quite different. It's actually the curvature, the bending, the warping of space-time. A very different way to think about this. And the point is is that, yes, it was only a theory, but the point of the story is that every single one of our theories has, there are two characteristics of a theory, scientific theory. One is, they've been tested ad nauseum. They are tested to breaking point. And typically what happens, at some point, they break. Sometimes very gently, like the small discrepancy, in the motion of, of Mercury, but they break. And so we all recognize that theories are tentative things. Any scientist who tells you he or she knows something absolutely, frankly, is not a scientist. Everything is tentative. You know, so if, if I could come back a thousand years from now, I would love to do so because I, I am almost certain that every single concept that we think is correct and true would be found wanting. So science is very peculiar in that regard. It is, it is both the best way we have discovered to learn things about the world that allow us to manipulate it, to make iPhones, to, to correct the fact that the temporal, temporal sort of uh, behavior in space differs from the temporal behavior on Earth, and that fact has to be taken into account so that the GPS on this device works. But it could well be, 100 years from now, someone will discover that even this, just a theory, is found wanting. And, and so it is all tentative. It is always tentative. But the point is, a theory is something that we, we, we label a thing a theory once it has gone through a huge number of tests that show that to the, to the degree our instruments are able to detect deviations, things are correct and true we recognize true to a certain degree and at some point that just a theory could be replaced by a better theory. Mike, did you want to weigh in? If I could just tag that really quick. Go ahead. Basically, the popular usage of the word theory and the scientific usage of the word theory are very different. So the popular word theory is more like the scientific word hypothesis. I have an idea that may or may not be true. Here's science's trick. This science's whole gig. You put confidence in a belief that's in proportion to the amount of evidence you have to support that belief. That's it. That's science's whole gig. So when science calls something a theory with a capital T, it means we've tested this so much you can trust it to 
base other work on it. It may prove to be only true in a set of constraints, but we don't know that yet. So we're saying you can trust this work when you call it a theory. Now, where that differs, uh, and where, you know, when we talk about a resurrection, for example, I agree that there's not a lot of empirical evidence to support this resurrection we're all so nutty about, Christians, right? I actually am in the science camp on that. It's kind of a weird thing to believe. And yet, I've had personal experiences that prove absolutely nothing to anyone who's not me, that there's something to this idea of God with us and it being incarnational. And so I make a decision to trust this story and see what it does in my life. Now, I then don't turn around and tell a secularist how to live their life based on my personal wacky belief that Jesus rose from the dead. But I do say, and would push back on the idea about science versus faith, that science has validated that believing and trusting in those ideas inside a set of constraints, for example, that God is basically loving or just, is beneficial for people, both as individuals and societies. And that is a scientific belief. So while my belief that Jesus may have resurrected is an unscientific belief, and I admit that, my beliefs about the consequence of believing that are actually quite scientific and based on good research. So I, I think then maybe it's science, you know, where faith and science collide, so to speak, might be that science goes through this entire process of providing testing and proof to a particular theory, whereas the religious mind, the only testing necessary is the personal experience of the per, of, of the individual. In other words, if, if your experience is a non-rational experience, which is deeply personal and meaningful to you, but it... So the conflict becomes when you try to convince other people that their rational experience must be overcome by your non-rational experience. And, Am I making any sense? Yes, you are. And, and if I may just j- jump in, I mean, I, I certainly agree with you, and I, I really compliment the fact that you, and this is what's so beautiful about people who have faith, that you, you simply assert, this is what I believe, there's no rational reason for it, this is what I believe, and then you then look at the consequences of that belief in your own life. I mean, that, I, I, I think that's actually very noble. The problem, though, is, is, the, is, is, is the following, is that I remember many, many years ago, when I, many, many, many years ago, when I was a student at, at Manchester, you know, I used to go to these, uh, these sort of Christian revival things because, you know, my friends were Christians and, you know, you want to hang out, so you go to these things, okay? And I, I was led to believe, you know, on many of these occasions that something, something happens to people when they become Christians, Some, something really tangible, measurable, something happens to them, they behave differently, and so on. But the problem that I, I, I have with, with this is that you look around our planet today, there are many different people who claim to be religious. And one has to accept them. I, I mean, I, this idea that you sh- if someone says they're religious, you should simply take it on faith that they are. But we have evidence, we have evidence that the mere fact of being religious and believing in something doesn't necessarily lead to outcomes that you might hope to see. 
And so there are people who do great things and have faith. The people who do great things and, and do not have faith. And the people who have faith and do terrible things and so on. So all possibilities exist on this planet. And so my conclusion is that, well, I want to. Well, so I actually want to. I actually want to. Uh, we're, we're we're moving ahead in time. I want to actually get some questions in here, and then I want to get to our last, uh, uh, last last topic. Yeah, you guys have to go for a beer sometime. Absolutely. Uh, one of my favorite moments in the discussion up to now was when Science Mike um, threw a bone to the poets and um, songwriters and others outside the realm of science. And my question for all of you, perhaps especially for Dr. Harrison, is do you guys have room for lawyers? <laughs> for who? And, and, and here's why. For lawyers? Because, because if... Is that what they said? Lawyers? Do you, do you have room for lawyers? Do, for lawyers, historians, and dare I say journalists. And here's why. If you were to posit the question, was George Washington the first president of the United States? We would all say, well, of course. But you can't prove that scientifically. I suppose we could say that that's a matter of faith. But the reason that we all believe that George Washington was the first president is because there is all sorts of legal, historical, eyewitness account evidence that's not scientific evidence. It's the same evidence that we use every day in the courtroom to prove or disprove a case. And so my question is, when it comes to things like the resurrection, which obviously cannot be tested scientifically, that, those kind of claims can be tested with legal, historical, journalistic sorts of uh, inquiry. And so is there any room for lawyers? So, okay. <laughs> See, I, I, would, I would contest the, the, the very things that you've mentioned are part of scientific inquiry. For example, I cannot actually test the assertion that in 5.5 giga years from now, this planet will careen into the atmosphere of the, of the dying red star that will be the sun, and eventually it will be vaporized. I can't actually, I can't prove that to you. So what I do is I try to use indirect evidence. So I look out at the, at the, at the galaxy, and there are 100 billion to 400 billion stars, I notice that actually there are stars that are very large and, 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 and so on, and there are stars that explode. And I look at, I look at consensus of, you know, do a census of the galaxy, and then I can somehow use that census to make a story. I can see stars that, how they are formed. For example, if you point your telescope this evening towards the Sword of Orion, there's a beautiful nebula, M42, within which, as we speak, there are stars, there are gas clouds collapsing down to form protostars. There are stars, during the course of this discussion, there are stars that have exploded. Who knows, destroying civilizations. Who knows what's... So we put these things into... We, we use this evidence and we can see that there's a sequence. And we say, aha, here's a sequence. And we construct theories that then show that we understand this sequence, why it has happened... So, for example, why do we predict, even though we cannot prove it because we will not be here, why do we predict that the sun will one day become a red giant? Because we can calculate that how long it would take for the fuel in the center to run out. 
there's enough fuel left at the center of the sun to last another five to six billion years. When that happens, according to other things that we've seen in the sky, we can, we see that the, that the core will collapse, will then heat up again, causing the outliers to expand. It'll expand, destroy Mercury first, then Venus, and then for many, many millennia, we'll be traveling through the sun's atmosphere and eventually we'll spiral in, and that'll be the end. The point is that we, evidence comes in lots of different forms. It can be direct, it can be indirect. I'll give you, for example, let's take the Higgs boson discovery in 2012. Why do I assert it's a Higgs boson, even though there's, there's no way that we human beings can directly interact with the quantum world? We cannot. As Mike said, we've evolved in a world that we, we know about sand and we know about mountains, but that's it. That's the only world that we directly have experience about. And moreover, we only know, we can only see the world in a very narrow range of wavelengths. If you ask, for example, a, a, you know, a bumblebee, they'll see, they see the world differently from us. If you ask a rattlesnake how they see the world, they see the world using infrared radiation, and so on. So what we do as scientists is that we collect different pieces of evidence and see, does the whole thing fit? Does, is, 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 does it fit into a pattern that we can understand? And the same, that is why we believe in these claims about historical people. There are lots and lots of pieces of evidence that hang together. And, for example, I believe that, that Australia exists, even though I've never actually visited Australia. And I use the same techniques, scientific techniques. So, yes, there is room for lawyers. I actually don't, <laughs> I, I actually don't believe that Poughkeepsie exists. Uh, we have a question over here. Um, so if, if anyone has a question they want to ask, be sure to raise your hand. But I've got some written questions. If the Higgs field is oversimplified, holding everything together... Could the Higgs field be called God, which or who lives in all of us? My, my answer would be the Higgs field is the force out of Star Wars. <laughs> uh, Go ahead, Mike. This is yours. So, so the Higgs field is one of the fields that manifest reality. It's an important one, and it's, it's somewhat unique in the fact that it will like to play with other particles besides its native particle. He could explain that better than I could. So, uh, but regardless, like, when I talk about God, I'm talking about a romanticized version of Einstein's God. Einstein used the word God. That doesn't mean Einstein asserted, like, there was this consciousness directing everything. He simply said, well, I didn't make us all be here. Something else did, and we study that. So when Einstein looked into physics, he often would say that poetically, that he was looking into the mind of God. Right? So when I, when I speak about God, I talk about a posture of humility that I didn't make me be here, but I get to enjoy the ride anyway. And when I look into that majesty and that beauty and the night sky and the fact that I can be in love and the fact that somehow like squishy matter in my ears measures vibrations in the air and I can hear Mozart, all those things compel me to a posture that I call worship. Now, I don't for a second think that, for example, my friends who are atheists don't have equal sense of awe and wonder at the universe. I guess maybe I'm just to romanticize it a little bit more and allow myself to enjoy the gift that is being and existence. And so by that understanding, absolutely something like the Higgs field is part of God, at least God's hand, and how God allows us. Matt, to Father Matthew, you look like you want to chime in. Thank you. Just to just to say quickly, 
At the end of the Principia, Isaac Newton writes about space and, and the qualities of space. And I remember someone that I was in college with at the time said, oh, you know, at the end of the Principia, where he basically says, space is God. And I said, I don't, know, I don't remember, I missed that part. But I went back and read it, and it looks like I, uh, Sir Isaac Newton is hinting at that. And uh, then I went back to Thomas to read about Thomas Aquinas, some of the things he got, says about God. And think about whether you can apply these to space. God is everywhere at all times. Uh, he's without time. He's timeless. He's a condition for everything else that exists. Um, he's a necessary condition for all uh, other beings. Um, and he cannot not be. He cannot not exist. Uh, and so Thomas Aquinas' conclusions about what we can say about God sound very similar to what we can say about space to me. Uh, I'm not saying that God is space, but I think it's something. It's an interesting question to ponder. Whoever asked that question, there's a, uh, a Hebrew name for God uh, among the from the rabbinic period into the mystical period that calls God Hamakom, which means the, the place. In other words, that God is the place where all existence resides. So perhaps that. Uh, uh, one right. more question, and then um, I want to push us to a different topic, a, a different take on things. Please expound the relationship of dark energy to God. And I have to admit that the first time I read it, I thought it was Duke energy to God. Dark energy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that, that actually sounds like a question that might be suited for Darth Vader. <laughs> okay, just, just very briefly. When the scientist uses the word dark whether it's dark matter, dark energy, or whatever, what the scientist is telling you is, I have no idea what this is, <laughs> right? So, and that, that's the truth of the matter. We, look, we thought the universe was expanding, and, and because we see things moving, moving away from us, great. But then something very strange happened in 1998. Uh, people measuring these stars that exploded, that, that explode, and by looking to see how bright they appear to be, you can figure out, and you know how bright they really are, you can figure out how far away these stars are, right? And an astonishing was discovered that during the course of this, you know, one and a half hours, whatever, the universe, the, the, the actual expansion of the universe is accelerating. Something is pushing the galaxies apart faster and faster and faster. And we have no idea what that is. And we call whatever that is dark energy. But no one on this planet knows what it is. And actually, it's very, this is a, a very somber discovery because we used to think until the end of the last century that should Homo sapiens last long enough, you know, a billion years, whatever it is, eventually all that there was to find out about this universe, we would eventually learn, because the light, the radiation would come to us, and we would learn from the radiation about what's out there. But if this observation holds up, and everything that we've done so far suggests that it's actually true, we are in a, we are in a civilization that may well be at the prime moment, because future generations, our descendants in the year 1 billion AD, will see a very different universe where there's actually less stuff to study than we are able to study. And so we, this is a complete mystery. You know, what is it that's actually pushing these things apart faster and faster and faster? We have literally no sensible ideas. We have ideas, but I don't think they're very sensible. 
So when we talk about dark matter, dark energy, singularity, the disparity between the standard model of physics and relativity, there's a gravity problem. All these things remind me of the writings of a guy named Paul who said that we see through a glass darkly. It's simply that posture of humility that whatever we are, clever as we are, we are not the masters of this domain. And to me, that does point to and illuminate the idea of God. The uh, 13th century Jewish philosopher Maimonides, he posited that, uh, and he was trying to reconcile Aristotelian philosophy and science with theology, and he posited that to know God, you needed to study uh, science, physics, philosophy, and mathematics. If he were alive today, Maimonides would agree with the statement I am about to say. You will know more about God by understanding E equals MC square than you will by reading the Bible. That's what Maimonides would say. I would agree with him. I would agree with now him. Now let me... I would disagree. <laughs> Good. Good. That means I'm going to come to you with my next question. Change our direction just a bit. Science is able to do a lot of amazing things. We're able to create a lot of amazing things because of the discoveries of science. We are really very close to cloning a human being. We are very close to creating computers with the, a level of artificial intelligence that mimics the, the activities of, of the human brain. We're close to giving machines emotions. Should we? Here, Father Matthew, I'm directing to you. Just because science can allow us to do something, should we do it? And what role does religion play in helping us make that ethical decision? It's a very serious question. And, and I'll start out just to kind of segue into this from the last topic. I had a quote that I wrote down from Stephen Hawking at the end of A Brief History of Time. I think it kind of applies to this as well. He says, up to now, most scientists have been too occupied with the development of new theories that describe what the universe is to ask the question, why? On the other hand, the people whose business it is to ask why, the philosophers, have not been able to keep up with the advances of scientific theories. Here you have two different spheres that used to be one. This used to all be philosophy. If you're a physicist, you're a philosopher. If you're a philosopher, you're a physicist. Uh, but, but there's something true about this. Now, you have to have advanced degrees in science now to understand, like Dr. Harrison, what's, what's going on. And, and so you have the people who think their job is to ask why. Uh, they can't understand the science of it. And the scientists haven't gotten degrees in philosophy. Um, and so how do, how do we go about figuring out whether something is morally acceptable in the area of bioethics? Um, it, it's an it's a important question. And I think religion has something to add in the sense that we've been thinking about morality for quite a while now. We, we've, uh, it's kind of our, our area, uh, a lot of, uh, some of us anyhow. Uh, and hopefully we can understand enough about the advances, uh, going on in medicine, um, in, in genetics, uh, in, in physics to, to contribute to, uh, to be able to contribute to an understanding of what's right and what's wrong. From the Catholic perspective, we always put a, a central emphasis on the human person. And so the person has certain dignity uh, and rights. Rights are based on necessity uh, that can't be violated. And so the needs of the person um, are, are something that other people have a responsibility to see to. The more able they are 
in a way, the more responsibility they have. But, but the human person is central, and so to not violate uh, the rights of the person, uh, I think, is really maybe the central tenet. So the conflict in terms of somebody who is going to have a conflict with the church over any of these issues, and you would be, and you mentioned, for example, the church focuses on the person, okay? So the issue becomes, uh, what is personhood? And when does personhood begin? What does the church's stand, for example, on stem cell research? Well, you have to make a distinction, I think, between embryonic stem cell research and non-embryonic stem cell research. My understanding is that recently most um, fruitful advances that we've had uh, involving embryonic uh, use has come from non-embryonic stem cells. It's not, I don't know that that's 100% the case, uh, but that, that's my current understanding. Maybe somebody else can correct me if they know. But the, the, uh, the church's teaching there is that uh, an embryo has a certain, uh, has, has a, everything that's necessary for a life of a human being. Um, and it's in a very, very early stage. Uh, but there, everything that's necessary for a human being to be there is there. And so destroying an embryo to, to extract its stem cells it's not considered to be a moral thing. You're right. The definition of personhood is very central, and what we understand as persons or not is also very critical uh, to that. But, um, but so I'm going to come back to you one last time. Sure. Does does the church use when it defines an embryo an embryo as a person? Has is it basing that on a faith teaching or some kind of scientific reasoning or a combination of both? And if it is both, then explain. Yeah. Well, a person, I want to be careful about use of the word person. In, in the United States, for example, use of the word person is restricted to those who have been born. And so you would never consider uh, an, an embryo or a fetus to be a person. Human life, I think, is maybe the safer term to use. Uh, and I think scientifically speaking, we can say that, yes, it's life and it's living. Uh, and also, yes, it's human. Um, and, and so I, I don't see that. That particular question is a religious opinion. Now, there are other questions, I, th- I think, that, that are maybe peg more critical thinking, especially when you, when you deal with uh, even the question of uh, uh, an intelligent chimpanzee, for example. Uh, what, se- what exactly separates a human from a chimpanzee uh, as far as humanity goes or life? Or an elderly person, somebody who's on life support, brain damage, etc. Those are, those are very difficult questions, but they're questions that, that are being discussed and, and considered. Before I uh, uh, let Harrison and Mike weigh in, let me just add that anybody who is a parent would say that personhood begins when your child graduates from college and has a job. (laughs) Touche. I mean, so it's a bad gig if you imagine science is a moral philosophy. It isn't. Science, when philosophers sometimes talk about science, they use the term methodological physicalism. Science is a tool you use to learn things. It doesn't say what you do with what you've learned. So you could imagine if unchecked by any moral philosophy, science can take you to very dark places. Many scientists today would debate whether the discovery of nuclear weapons was a positive or negative development for humanity, right? Science itself will sure tell you how to split an atom or by splitting atoms, create enough force to actually fuse atoms and really make someone's day awful, okay? On the other hand, we all bring to the world a personal moral philosophy of some kind. 
For many people, and probably most people alive today, there's a significant faith element to their personal moral philosophy. Increasingly in the West, there is not a religious element. That's uh, ideas like secular humanism. Either way, uh, we've been gifted by God, evolution, or both with a tremendous intuitive capacity to care for others and to work for common good, and also with a tendency to serve self and those we feel closest to. It's a perpetual war in us. And so I think it's essential to allow our moral understanding that, yes, is developed through faith to inform what we should do in science, but also to let science educate us on the limitations of our biases and our existing philosophy. So, for example, we talk about personhood and stem cell research. And if you were to ask me what I think about that, I'm going to give you a big question mark because it's incredibly complicated. On the one hand, a fertilized embryo has the potential to become a human being. On the other hand, it appears as approximately half of all pregnancies spontaneously end, most of them without any knowledge on the part of the mother that there was ever a human embryo, because it's really hard to fuse two sets of DNA together successfully. And most human tissues at first aren't viable. So what this tells me is we all bring radically simplistic notions to complex ethical issues, and I hope both science and faith could encourage us all to step back and look at things more patiently and with a broader perspective. Harrison. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, this is very well said. I mean, I, but I think I would like just to make a, make a, an addition to this, and I think that the problem of what is moral is a problem both for faith and for science. And again, I use evidence. Look at the history of the major religions on this planet. There was a time when slavery was thought to be good. Today, we think that is no longer the case. There was a time when it was thought to be perfectly okay for young children in the mines of Yorkshire, England, to drag coal carts underground. We don't, we no longer think this is good. So I think both faith and science have to evolve, have to come to terms of what we mean by moral. This is, recall earlier I said that I have, we all have faiths, and one of my faiths is that there is such a thing as an absolute wrong. And I, I have to believe that. Otherwise, I cannot condemn the Nazis. I can't condemn the slave owners. I can't condemn the traffickers of human beings. So I, so, so I have to have, so I have this faith that there is such a thing as an absolute wrong. But it is for all of us to try to figure out and understand, you know, what are these absolute wrongs? And I think both faith and science has still a long way to go to answer that question. Let's take some more questions from the floor. Coming to you, Betsy. Reverend Betsy. Hold on, there's a mic coming to you. It's nice to be on this side of the mic. I have heard from everybody, all of you, and you too, Jack, that you have a, a strong sense of morality and humility, and that's why this conversation is taking place. I also heard that science is a theory. You're always looking for questions, and perspectives that might break through to the other side. And I'm just wondering if the ivory tower of academia and maybe the church or people of faith ought to get together more often and also in a more 
organized and concerted effort so that these questions about science and faith might help each other and help humanity to be the moral people that I hear that all of you think that we are. So I don't know if that's taking place or if you would, if you would also think that that's a good idea. I guess that's my question. That's why I love you, Betsy. If only there was something like the Village Square in Tallahassee, Florida. I love this panel. Father Matthew. Uh, yeah, I, pre- I appreciate uh, that point. I don't, I don't know if I'm a moral person or not. I, uh, I try to be, but God will judge that eventually. But, but I think that that's exactly what Hawking, Stephen Hawking was getting at, the quote that I brought up at the end of the brief history of time. It requires collaboration now because one person doesn't have enough within their field to be able to come to the conclusion that needs input from multiple fields. Uh, that's all I want to say to that point. Uh, I have two favorite sciences. One's cosmology, which I've talked about a lot. The other's neurology. And I love neurology because it's the only science where something studies itself. A human brain studies a human brain. It's fantastic. And, uh, was that standing next to you? It's me. It's my beside myself. <laughs> What's interesting, uh, what we learn neurologically, is that as soon as human beings apply a label to themselves, they create a cognitive bias. So if you call yourself a Catholic or a Baptist or a Christian or an atheist or a scientist, you create an unconscious bias, and you will automatically, unconsciously filter out information that undermines your position. And there's this frustration among power structures, especially in the United States, that the most recent generation of Americans is remarkably hesitant to label themselves as anything. And I view this as an incredibly positive development. Because we can come together not as religious people and scientists or whatever, but as humans trying to improve the world, we come with the requisite humility to have a substantive discussion and not a debate just so we can feel smart. Uh, so I actually have great hope that in the future that's, that's happening. Uh, and I mean, in my, in my own life, I've seen that many times over. I, I have a podcast and about half of my listeners are religious and about half are not religious and they get together and they speak civilly and it, it there's tremendous dialogue when you sort of meld these reference frames. Uh, and I'd love to see that happen more in the academic world for sure. Yeah, I absolutely uh, share this sentiment. I mean, I mean, you know, this is the way I, I, I see life. Um, let's suppose we are the only sentient beings in the known universe. It would be a crime against the universe to let this thing, the human beings, disappear. And that is why we have to strive very hard to try to move forward together. If, on the other hand, there are other civilizations out there, it would be a crime against the universe not to one day reach out to them. But that requires that we are, are around to do that. And that's why I think, you know, this sort of dialogue is very important. Because without that, you know, there's the abyss. Is there any more questions from the floor? Then, Father Matthew, I'm going to ask you to quote me the first line of Genesis. <laughs> Shots fired. <laughs> In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's the typical way that it's translated. I'll tell you how it sounds in Hebrew. Bereshit bara Elohim et hashamayim ve'et ha'aretz. The word bereshit, 
breaks down in an interesting way. Ba is the uh, word in. Resh is like Rosh. Rosh Hashanah, head of the year, beginning of the year. So that Rosh or Resh means beginning. The eat ending is a grammatical construct that connects the word supposedly to another noun. So now I'm going to translate this phrase for you the way the actual Hebrew reads. In the beginning of, God created the heavens and the earth. Think about that. In the beginning of, God created the heavens and the earth. There is a missing word, a missing something. The entire Bible begins with a mystery. What we are doing here, whether we are in the church of faith or in the church of science, is trying in our ways to fill in that missing piece. I thank our panel, and it's been a great privilege to serve with you today. Hey there, it's Vanessa back here with you. I hope you enjoyed this fascinating program with Dr. Harrison Prosper, Mike McCarg, Father Matthew Bush, and Rabbi Jack Romberg. What a privilege it is to have both faith and science represented together to respectfully discuss big topics with a phenomenal facilitator who pushes on both sides. I really loved how Dr. Prosper talked about being wrong. That's how we make progress, you guys. So why do we so often feel like we can't be wrong? And why don't we let our politicians change their minds without enormous blowback? Now, speaking out of the other side of my mouth, did anybody else get a pit in their stomach when the brilliant physicist told us that they know nothing for certain? Oh boy. And who else out there had to look up some words? I'm not shy. I'll go ahead and admit that. All right, listen, in the beginning of this episode, I told you this conversation felt like addressing the elephant in the room. There were so many things that came up that I've thought about regularly with real curiosity, but I wouldn't dare broach these topics with my friends because it felt like calling them out. Like, how can you believe that when we know this? Well, guess what? What I heard in this program makes a lot of sense to me, and I agree way more than I ever would have imagined. And now it feels like a huge loss, an absence, not to talk to my friends about how they see things as a way to get to know my friends in a deeper way, but also for my own growth. I didn't grow up in the church, and I generally feel very ignorant on matters of faith. And you might be surprised to know that I really do believe in God. I just have way more questions than answers. And when I have questions, I usually sit on the sidelines and just keep wondering or occasionally ask someone who feels safe, often someone who is also on the sidelines with me. So really, what kind of answer am I expecting from that? Seems completely counterproductive and even embarrassing to admit. So I'm happy to report 
that on the topic of how people in the faith community reconcile faith and science over issues where they seem to be at odds with each other, I have considered that about a million times in my life, and I sit here now completely satisfied with the answers that were given today. And once again, I'm so thankful for these programs and these brilliant and brave panelists, because these conversations are designed to address the big and poignant questions that many of us wonder about, but often we don't have the right place to ask about them. If you're new to the Village Square and you're wondering why it works, there is a method, a formula, if you will, that makes this work. Check out episode one of Village Squarecast to hear directly from our founder and president, Liz Joyner, about how we make pigs fly. One other quick thing that's on my mind right now. Here we are, 46 episodes in, and can I just tell you how happy it makes me to hear those familiar voices of Village Square regulars. Today, I heard Bill Maddox ask a question, who's on the Village Square Board of Directors, and he's one of our regular facilitators. And I also heard Pastor Betsy Willette Zierden, a regular member of the God Squad, This makes me so very happy because it demonstrates the community that these programs create. People who participate on a regular basis, people who are on the panel one day because of their expertise, but who also choose to be listeners on another day so they can learn from others. This is really what we set out to do with the Village Square 15 years ago, create a community space where we can have these conversations together across diverse opinions, expertise, and experiences. And it's not just for the people who can be together physically in the room. We have many national initiatives expanding all the time. And thanks to Zoom and our super awesome podcast listeners, we've been able to find even more ways to build connections with people all over the country. We, us here, Village Squarecast listeners, we are a community too, and we're thrilled you're here on this journey with us. And we'd love to hear from you. Find us on social media and let us know your thoughts. We're on Facebook at The Village Square or on Twitter at Village Square US. You can also visit our website at villagesquare.us to reach out to us directly or to subscribe to our newsletter so you can stay up to date with everything happening at the Village Square. Before we say goodbye, we'd like to offer our sincere thanks to Florida Humanities for partnering with us to present this podcast series, Created Equal and Breathing Free, which is airing right here on Village Squarecast through the end of the year. Also, thanks to Brian Deloge, Lee Hinkle, and Spence Davis for helping to make these programs possible through their generous donations. We appreciate you listening to Faith versus Science. Until next time, we challenge you to reach out with an open heart and mind to someone who doesn't look or think like you. It changes everything. We'll talk to you soon, and thank you so much for listening to Village Squarecast. Cast.